0: Today's sermon text is from the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, Mark kicked this off a couple of weeks ago, calling it the Sermon on the, or Summer in the Mount, or Summer on the Mount, and it's Sermon on the Mount is the actual title here on these three chapters. And Mark kicked it off by talking about the blessedness, and this is where Jesus is sort of revealing himself to the Jewish people, because that's this first bullet point here Jesus audience was primarily Jewish these Jewish people were coming to hear Jesus because he spoke with such authority he was doing these various miracles to show that the power of God rested on him which he needed to do he was about 30 years old as we're told in Scripture when this began we don't know a whole lot about Jesus uh, other than his birth Uh, we know one occasion when he was 12 years old from the time that Mary and, and Joseph brought him back from Egypt when he was probably three years old but you fast forward to when he was 12 years old, he, he was left behind somehow by his mother and father there in the temple. When they came back, and after about three days, they found Jesus in the temple discussing with the scribes and the Pharisees and asking questions about the law of all things, the Old Testament, which Jesus knew like the back of his hand. And fast forward from the time that he's age 12, we don't know anything about Jesus until age 30. And at age 30, what happened? He was baptized right, that was the beginning of his ministry. Now he didn't need to be baptized, he was, I know when he came to John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, you're coming to me to be baptized? Here's a man with no sin, tempted in every way that we are, but never sinned." And so he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness at the age of 30. And so he spent the next three, three and a half years going about doing great things for God, miracles, raising people from the dead, And during this entire time, these three and a half years, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who are sitting here and and watching what Jesus was doing, were always trying to trap him into saying he was doing something wrong, that he was blasphemous, that he was healing on the Sabbath. Imagine how terrible that is, right? But we know the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was a day of rest. But Christ did all these things to show that it's about, inwardly, about the heart of helping others. And this is something the Pharisees knew nothing about; these teachers of the law. It's all about external appearance, as we'll read from several passages here this morning. But this passage, this sermon today, is about true holiness. And you don't have the lesson text there in your bulletin outline, but it's Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 30. If you want to follow along there with the scripture, because I don't have it on the on the board, it's page 786. Obviously, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament so we're gonna look at this particular passage as we work our way through this summer uh, with the various passages from Matthew 5 6 & 7 we're gonna see that Christ is revealing himself to this Jewish audience to these folks that kinda who is this Jesus is he just another prophet is he just another good man that's come along is he like an Elijah is this the Elijah to come we know the Elijah to come that was prophesied in the Old Testament was actually John the Baptist, who was about six months older than Jesus, probably related, and he's the one that baptized Jesus. How important that was, a seminal moment for Christ, that of all the stories in the Bible, age 12, and then nothing happens until he's baptized at age 30. And Jesus, of all people, didn't need to be baptized. He did it to fulfill all righteousness. And as God the Father looked down on him and said, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased with. That should tell us a lot. You know, we used to wear those bracelets in the past about what would Jesus do? WWJD. It should be WDJD. What did Jesus do, right? Instead of trying to guess what they think Jesus would do in a situation, read God's Word. We need to apply God's Word to our lives and understand what He wants us to do. You'll never understand what God's will is until you understand all 66 books of the Bible. You don't have to know it all, but just understand those 66 books of the Bible, all 1,189 chapters. So here as we get into the lesson text this morning, the sermon text, we're going to look at something called the law, which Jesus knew. And this is where, again, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they thought Jesus came to destroy the law. And so he comes up with this first acclamation here that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not... Abolished the law. He didn't come to destroy anything. But they're a bunch of liars. The people who were the Sanhedrin, these men, these seventy men. And there were some good ones like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. But they're the only two that are mentioned that are decent men. The rest of them were just out to kill Jesus. And in fact, that's they're the ones that did it. It wasn't the Romans. Romans just did what the the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted them to do. They couldn't kill anyone without the, the Roman government. Endorsing that. Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. It was the synagogue. It was the Sanhedrin. It was these people who should have been expecting Christ. They're the ones that killed Jesus because he was a good man and he tried to do right and he raised people from the dead. After Lazarus was raised from the dead, read John chapter 11. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they said, This man has got to go. He should die for their country because they're all concerned about their position not about Christ it was all about them and we see this a lot of times today in society people just boosting themselves up exalting themselves and we know that God's gonna humble the proud and he's going to what give grace to the humble humility Philippians chapter 2 talks about imitating Christ's humility that's what sets him apart from all other religions because Christianity is not a religion Christ was a humble servant who didn't consider equality something to be grasped with God he came as a suffering servant that's what passion is people today say they're passionate about something if you really knew what passion is passion means suffering servant that's what Christ was that's why we call it passion week when he went to the cross for our sins past present and future so when we look at the lesson text today We're going to start there with verse 17. We've already got the slide up there. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's telling all these Jewish people who are sitting around him there might have been a few Gentiles, but Christ mainly came for the Jews first, the Gentiles second. And thank God for the church age, which started at Pentecost. That us, Gentiles, we are able to be seeds of Abraham. Meaning we have a righteous inheritance because of Jesus Christ. You know, Christ went to the cross for us, and we are justified by our faith. Salvation is freely given to us, but we are justified by our faith and declared righteous before God Almighty because of Jesus. We could never be righteous. Romans is all about doctrine and how None is righteous, no, not one. Read Romans chapter 3, verse 23. None is righteous, no, not one. People who say they're above reproach or they've been saved and now they don't sin. They're liars, anybody that would say that. John wrote his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Spoke specifically, if you say you're without sin, that you're, and those were written to people who were saved. Those epistles were written to people who were saved and, and, and they think that they have never sinned or, or are not sinning now, the truth is not in them and they make God out a liar that's God's Word not mine it's pretty scary stuff but here Jesus came to fulfill the law and not abolish the law so what is this law well we know the law is the first five books of the Old Testament Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy that's considered the Pentateuch that's considered the law and when we talk about the law there's, there's ceremonial law which was the priesthood but there's also the moral law you know the Ten Commandments that we memorized when we were in Bible school growing up so you had two types of law there Christ is talking about both right if you go back 1500 years from the time of Christ around 1450 BC that's when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments twice because of his anger we'll get to that that's one of these things we're gonna talk about here shortly as well got those Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments were meant for us to be conscious of what sin is, to be knowledgeable of what sin is. The law never saved anyone. That's what Romans is about. The law never saved anyone. So you've got this, this uh, moral law that God put in place in how man should treat one another, and it could never save anyone. I never understood why people get upset about the Ten Commandments being in a courthouse. That never saved anyone. That was for the Jewish people. It was, in essence, a constitution That God forged through the angels to Moses to the people to guide them for those 40 years before they entered the promised land of course that continued on and on until the time of Christ and Christ didn't come to do away with that I mean who wouldn't want to obey the Ten Commandments it's in the Bible twice it's in Exodus and it's again in Deuteronomy it's there to protect us to make us knowledgeable what sin is but it's not going to save you only the blood of Jesus Christ is going to save us But Jesus feels like he has to defend himself here by saying, I didn't come to abolish anything. I'm not being blasphemous. He's raising people from the dead, for crying out loud. Although prophets could do that in the Old Testament, you can't now. Prophecy's been sealed up, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 13. But here, they're trying to trap Jesus. And going back to those 1,500 years with giving of the law, it was both the law, again, ceremonial law which has to do with the priesthood and the moral law that I just talked about but when we talk about ceremonial law that was about the Levitical priesthood the typical person could not have a hearing with God that's how God chose to interact with with people up until the time of Christ and that ceremonial law had to do with animal sacrifice without the shedding of blood as God said without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin horrible as that sounds and we hate to think about killing animals that's what was required it was required in the Garden of Eden you remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they had clothed themselves with fig leaves then later on after God asked where they were and they admitted what they had done next we see them clothed in what animal skins right how do you get animal skins you got to kill an animal that was necessary because of their sin Cain and Abel Cain killed Abel Abel brought what the first of the fruits of and vegetables that he gardened, and then you had Abel who, or Cain brought the fruits and vegetables, and then you had Abel who brought an animal sacrifice, which was considered essential to worship, right? What we bring to worship. So that tells us blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. So this priesthood that was set up in 1500 BC at Mount Sinai, the tabernacle as well. This was set up because it was only through the Levitical priesthood, one of those 12 tribes, is how God was going to interact with the people of Israel. His chosen people, only through the high priest. And that high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, to the Ark of the Covenant. that had the Ten Commandments. It had the Aaron's budded staff, and it had the jar of manna. The blood had to be put on. It's a very small piece of furniture, about three foot long and about two foot by two foot. Very small. But once a year that high priest went in there and put that blood on that altar where God met mankind now fast forward now to the time of Jesus because once God puts in place a particular covenant right you don't change you you put it in place it stays there until God says something else comes about and what came about and this is about three years before this happened but what came about was this right here we as a Christian church believe from Acts two forty-two and Acts 20, verse 7 that we should celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. And we're told about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John alludes to it somewhat. He doesn't really talk about specifics because John knows it's probably already been covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's also talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Every time we partake of this little piece of wafer that doesn't have yeast in it, symbolic of sin, and it's fruit of the vine. It's not wine. It's fruit of the vine. It's grapefruit juice. Symbolic. Nothing magical about it. It doesn't turn into the blood and body of Christ like some folks think it does in other denominations. We partake of this and as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I come again. That's what we do every Sunday. We proclaim the death of Christ. That's central to our belief as Christians. Now we talk about the resurrection a lot, and that's our hope for the future, right? But the death burial of Christ is what's essential to us—that the blood covers our sin, not blood of animals from the past. When Jesus went to the cross, about three years after what we're reading this morning, when Jesus went to the cross, and He said, "It is finished." What happened? Well, He said, "What is finished is the age of law is is over." And what was finished? The priesthood was over. Again, the law is about moral law which is still in place today and we're going to see how Jesus is going to take that moral law and turn it into something even more challenging. And also the ceremonial law. When Christ went to the cross, the priesthood was over. Jesus was never a priest in the order of the Levitical priesthood. I know this is getting into some detail. He was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He was both priest and king. All those Levitical priests were just priests. Started with Moses and Aaron on Mount Sinai. But when Christ was crucified, that temple curtain tore from where? From top to bottom. That was the area between the holy place and the holy of holies where that priest went once a year, that high priest went once a year and put that blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It's over, you no longer need a priest, right? It's Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. He's our go between. Read John chapter 5, verse 23. It talks specifically about the Father has entrusted all judgment to who? The Son. So, how you treat Jesus Christ is how you stand before God. It's not you to God, it's Jesus Christ is our go between. He's our defense attorney, He's our advocate, He's the judge, He's all three. So our relationship, which starts with reconciliation through Christ, is how we stand before God, either either condemned or saved, eternal life. And Jesus was trying to point out here that I'm not trying to do away with the law, especially the moral law and the ceremonial law here that he's going to the cross later. They didn't understand and he didn't really touch on that here like I am because he's just trying to give them baby steps of what's taking place. So that story is just a short backdrop of what's taking place here with with Christ. I hate to put this on the communion table. Let me set it over here. The next verse here, verse 18. For truly I tell you, truly I tell you, when Christ says that, that means that that's that's a big deal. Pay attention, right? Charles Stanley, if you listen to him, he's always saying, listen, right? If you watch Charles, listen. But Jesus is saying that here, for truly I tell you, means pay attention, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Again, this is early in Jesus, three and a half years. He's probably 30, maybe 31 years old. And again, he's going to the cross somewhere around the age of 30 to 33 and a half. If you read the King James Version, it talks about jot and tittle. That's that old terminology, right? The stroke of a pen a little bit easier to understand here nothing should be done away with when God puts something in place it stays in place I was controller down here at Exide for 19 years and I can tell you when we would put policies and procedures in place out on the production floor one thing that would always drive me and the plant manager crazy was people would stop doing it after a couple of weeks right and I'm sure many of you whether you work in the school system or whatever you do you follow policies and procedures until what somebody says stop or there's a new one a revised one right and that's the way it is with the covenant Jesus saying don't stop doing anything do exactly what the law says until something new comes up which is the new covenant that was coming three years later he was not talking about that here yet but we have hindsight don't we we can look back and see exactly what Jesus was thinking the Lord's Supper, communion. He was going to take that Passover meal. All right, going back 1,500 years. You know, when the Israelites left Egypt with Moses, two to three million of them probably. We know there were 603,550 men over the age of 20. So there had to be at least two to three million people. When Moses left with them, the last plague when Pharaoh said, I've had enough was when what happened? The firstborn male in every household died, including the livestock. The firstborn male. And that finally broke Pharaoh's heart, his hard heart. The other nine plagues, as bad as they were, he's a hard man. But that Passover meal, what were they instructed to do? The Israelites were told the night before, take this lamb. And there were specific instructions about not breaking the lamb's bones and to prepare it a certain way, but the one thing they had to do was what? The head of the household had to take the blood from that lamb and they had to go over to the doorpost. I know the person around the camera's gonna hate this. Said to take that blood and do what? Put it here, here, and there. It's almost like a cross, isn't it? I don't think it's by accident that it happened that way. They had to literally take that blood and use a hyssop And put that blood on the door. And when that angel of death came by, all those Israelite households, the angel of death passed over. That's why it's called Passover. And so they were saved because of what they did. Their faith resulted in action, didn't it? Which is what our faith should result in. Action. But fast forward. The Lord's Supper, the night he was betrayed, the night there in that upper room where he took that Passover meal... And there at the end, after Judas had left, the one who betrayed him, he didn't participate in the Lord's Supper because he wasn't saved. He was gone go out to betray Jesus for a few pieces of silver. Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and broke it, didn't he? That's the new covenant. He couldn't do it the next day because he's going to the cross. So he did it the night before. That's the new covenant. That's what we're living in now. That's why we do it every week in the Christian church. We don't do it quarterly, annually, or whenever. We believe that we should do it should do it every week and Jesus said as often as you do this you proclaim my death we want to shout it out don't we that Jesus Christ died for our sins we shouldn't be ashamed of it so that's the new covenant that's the ceremonial law that Christ is talking about you should keep doing this keep killing these animals up until I say it is finished on that cross and that temple curtain tore it's over The covenant has been replaced with a new covenant that we are to follow as believers in Christ. So there, again, what is he saying in verse 19? Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we're warned in the Bible, in Deuteronomy And also at the end with revelation and remember jesus quoted deuteronomy more than any book of the bible you see that during the 40 days of temptation after he was baptized jesus quoted deuteronomy but deuteronomy and revelation both say what do not add to or take away anything written in god's word or you will be what you will be accursed that's pretty scary I hear a lot of man-made monikers today man-made traditions which these Pharisees were all about there's Pharisees in the world today and I know a lot of people believe in things like the Romans Road I don't those are five verses that are yeah they're right out of the Bible but did you know the book of Romans has 433 verses 16 chapters how can you pick out five verses and say this is what you need to do to be saved that's fake that's phony it's not the complete gospel Luke wrote in Acts about, we should preach, the or Paul said, and Luke wrote it, we should preach the entire counsel of God. All of it. All 1,189 chapters. 260 chapters in the New Testament, and whatever that equates to in the Old Testament. All of it. Talked about Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley's son, Andy Stanley, a lot of people like to follow. And he seems like he's always saying something that gets him in trouble. And I don't know if that's by design, or if he's just... uh, Misled, but he made a comment a few years ago that uh, the Christian faith must be unhitched from the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if that's been taken out of context and how he said that, but that's kind of scary things to hear from someone who's a minister of a megachurch in Atlanta. I know Charles Stanley and his son don't get along that well, but we have to read the entire Bible. If you think you can just read the New Testament, I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't want to hear about the Old Testament. And that's gonna be further from the truth. That's what Jesus knew was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament at the time of Christ. It's the Old Testament, it's Isaiah and the Psalms. All the prophecies, there's over three hundred prophecies that have been fulfilled of Jesus Christ coming. We all memorize Psalm twenty three when we were when we were a youth. And what about Psalm twenty two? Read Psalm 22 sometime, it almost sounds like the person was standing there at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die. And this was penned by David centuries before it actually happened. Be careful what you hear and what people tell you. Read God's word for yourself. Read it for yourself and understand. Much has been given, much will be asked. And we have been given much, especially here in this great country that we live in. So here, we need to make sure that we don't add to or take away and to keep God's law. That's what he's telling the Israelites, the Jewish people. And then now he really throws it out there. Look what he says in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, Jesus loved children. He said, if you cause one of these to stumble, what? it'd be be better to have a millstone tied around your neck or you will have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea which means you're going to, to die, aren't you? Unless we become like little children humble, trusting people we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, will we? Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again How do you get born again? He's a grown man How do I go back into my mother's womb? We must be born again so many people say they had certain things about them that well I was born that way we're all born into sin we all have our issues and Jesus said unless a man is born again you'll never see the kingdom of heaven the man must be born of water and of the Spirit right the Spirit of the Living God the Holy Spirit that comes on us when we are baptized but here Christ is saying unless you you're and he didn't care these people were following him around he spoke the truth Unless you're righteous and surpasses, and we know that we can never be righteous. Unless you're righteous and surpasses these men, you'll never see the kingdom of God. If you look at Matthew chapter three, look what John the Baptist said when he was baptized You know, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come, and he's baptizing; he's paving the way for Christ. If you look at Matthew chapter three, verse seven and eight, look what he says about these Pharisees. Matthew 3, 7 and 8, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptized, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We should repent, we should have fruit that shows that we are saved, right? These works don't save us. Right? We can never do anything to save ourselves. But calling the people who were the leaders of wasn't Christianity, the leaders of the Jewish law called them a bunch of a bunch of snakes. Jesus said the same thing here in Matthew twenty three. And Jesus said there was none greater than John the Baptist. Matthew twenty three, and I don't have time to read all of this. There's seven woes here though. And what did he say about them in verse three? They do not practice what they preach. Hypocrites. And he says in verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, going back to Philippians chapter chapter 2, right? Woe to you Pharisees, teachers of the law, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. Verse 13, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Look what he says in verse 23. You give a tenth of all you got, that's what they were required to do under law—is be tithers in the Old Testament. He says you've neglected the more important matters of the law: justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's how a Christian should live. That's how the Jewish people should live. Justice—not for yourself, for others. Mercy—be merciful to people. Faithfulness, right? Faithfulness. What about Micah six eight? I think Jesus was probably thinking about that when he said this in, in Matthew twenty three twenty three. Micah 6.8 says, what is required of man? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Right? Now that's something to get your arms around, right? We said, we don't know what God wants from us. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Micah 6.8. Matthew 23, 23 is essentially the same. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Faithfulness is being humble, exalting others, helping others out. Putting yourself second. Who puts themselves second? We might do that with our kids, but do you ever do it for someone who's not in your family? That's the true measure of a Christian that Jesus is trying to get across here in his Sermon on the Mount. All right, but those were some passages that are just shocking to me that he would Jesus would stand up and tell these men who should have known better. They should have been looking for Jesus. After all these centuries, they should be looking for Christ. That's what the Old Testament is about. The coming Savior. All those blood sacrifices had to be done over and over and over again. But Jesus was the final one. The final one. It is finished. Right? His finished work on the cross. Well, what's the problem with the Pharisees? This next bullet point, the Pharisees and teachers of the law had no love in their heart. They didn't love anybody but themselves. They loved to stand on the street corners, had their long prayers. They loved to be called rabbi teacher. As if they're what? Knowledge Knowledge puffs up but love builds up? They don't know anything about that that Paul talked about later. They wore these phylacteries on their head. A phylactery was a prayer box. And the bigger the box on your head, the more righteous you were perceived by man, not by Jesus. That's just another man-made tradition. They like to sit up like down here in our church they'd sit on the front row and, and act like they're very pious and, and And holy and nothing could be further from the truth is why Jesus called them out on it there was no love in their heart but through the law we become conscious of what sin is the next point there that's the that's the new international version version King James says what it's through the law we become knowledgeable of what sin is that's what the law is about to guide us to guide us into how we should live our lives that we shouldn't what we shouldn't be angry or we shouldn't murder right We'll get to that here shortly before I run out of time we shouldn't commit adultery but we shouldn't lust either is what he's getting to but it's through the law we become conscious of what sin is we should be hear hearers and doers of the word as James says in chapter 2 or James chapter 1 verse 22 don't just go and look at yourself in a mirror and then walk away and don't remember what you what you look like as James says Read God's Word, study it, know His will, and then go out and apply that in our lives. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 is very specific about this great hall of faith, about people like Abraham, and it says, By faith, Abraham did what? He left a foreign land and went to the promised land based on God's instruction. By faith, Abraham did what? He offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice, although God stopped him before He he slew him. By faith, Noah did what? By faith, Noah built an ark. At a time where it had never rained. Imagine the ridicule that he went through because he listened to God. Ray had the prostitute, that great faith chapter. By faith, Ray had been what? She welcomed the spies there in Jericho to spy out, to allow these spies to figure out how they were going to destroy Jericho. And it turned out they didn't have to do anything. God made the walls tumble down as long as they were faithful and obedient. Right? But this next slide here is a little bit of detail about Luther and Calvin. Because a lot lot of times we think, well, I'm saved by faith. I don't have to do anything else. Romans chapter 6 talks specifically about how our salvation is not a license to sin. So many today say, well, Christ will meet you where you are? Absolutely. But everybody he met in the Bible like that, he said what? Go and sin no more. And you can't probably read that, but this is about Martin Luther and John Calvin. These men were giants of the faith in Europe back in the 16th century. They, in essence, started the Protestant Reformation Movement that pretty much cut off the Catholic Church and ultimately ended up in the birth of this country with uh, the Protestant Reformation Movement with the people coming from mostly England. But oftentimes we think we're saved by faith and we don't have to do anything else. I make that confession of faith. I can go and live my life how I want. That's very common today. It's faith only. But what does John Calvin say? What does Martin Luther say? Well, I'll read it to you. Martin Luther said in 1535, idle faith is not justifying faith. Because we have to have justifying faith, don't we? To be, t- to be declared righteous in God's eyes through Jesus Christ, idle faith is not justifying faith. What did John Calvin say? Therefore, faith alone... Which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. All those people in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith they did this, by faith they did this, they did that because they were faithful. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. People like to quote John 3:16. I love John 3:16, but you can't pull one verse out and say all I have to do is believe. James even pointed out that the demons believe Jesus Christ. And they're condemned, aren't they? They believe in Jesus. It takes more than just belief, it takes something on our part to accept what Christ has done on the cross, to believe that, that for our sins, we have to be active. And again, that is so pivotal to go all the way back to what started the Protestant Reformation movement, which the Christian church, the Baptist church, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, all of those are Protestant beliefs that founded this country, that started the Protestant Reformation even before that. Now I think this next slide probably says it all, right? Can't see that far. We are not saved by works, are we? But our faith will produce works. That's one verse you ought to have in your Bible. This was the basis of the Protestant Reformation, but there's many verses that are important. I shouldn't have to turn over here to read it, but I'm going to. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and it's not from yourself, it is the gift of God. Faith is not the gift. The gift is salvation. How, does, how do we get faith? So many people ask that. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith comes by what? Faith comes, I can still hear Ross Dampier telling me this when I was 11 years old. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. What, who, what's the word of God? Jesus Christ, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ just didn't come into existence there in the manger. He was there at creation. He's, he's seen everything, we don't really understand fully about how you've got the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. they're separate, but yet they're one, and they're all God. right? But he says here, it's the gift of God salvation, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Our faith will produce works. If you have, say you have faith and you don't have any works from that, you're not saved. You don't have any fruit of the Spirit. Jesus cursed that fig tree that last week he was in Jerusalem before he went to the cross. It's a fig tree, but it didn't have any what on it? Didn't have any figs, didn't have any fruit, so he cursed it. And what happens to a tree that's dead? You chop it down and you burn it. Right? I got a big burn pile at home. I live in the county, thank goodness. And so after that pile gets so big of stuff I've picked up and cut down, then you burn it. That's what's going to happen to these people who claim to know Christ and they don't. And Mark will get to that here in a couple more chapters where it says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only those who do what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. So continuing on here, quickly here, Um, Jesus now goes from talking about the law, as important as it is and how he has come to fulfill that, he's going to talk about, or we're going to talk about two of those, uh, relative to the Ten Commandments. You know, nine of the Ten Commandments are mentioned in the epistles. Nine of the ten. I'm not going to tell you which one isn't. You can probably guess. But the first one he's going to talk about here is murder. Thou shalt not kill, right? You have heard that it was said, this is verse 21 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it has been said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, there it is again, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, not just the average person, a brother or sister, a fellow Jew, someone who should be saved, we can translate that now to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. If you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And he's talking specifically there about really being a, a belligerent type of individual who just flies off the deep end. Now, there's a lot of great men of faith in the Bible who were, were angry people. Moses was one of them. You know, in a fit of rage, he killed an Egyptian. Yes, Moses. One of the greatest men of the Old Testament killed a man. King David, he was an accomplice to murder. Paul was an accomplice to murder. Three of the greatest men in the Bible were either murderers or accomplices to murder, which if you're an accomplice, you're probably as guilty as, what well, you are as guilty as someone who actually pulls the trigger or throws the rock or whatever. But there's a danger there. If we can't control our temper and be angry, we have something going on inside. You know, you're driving down the highway and you're looking at your temperature gauge on your car. If that temperature's up, there's something going on under the hood, right? Is there something going on under the hood in you? Right? Do you have a water pump problem? Is the thermostat going out? Is the hose busted? Is are you out of coolant? You've got to ask God to help you discern what's wrong with you. You should not be angry. And everybody can say, "Well, I don't think anyone here's has killed anyone." Again, some people, pretty famous people in the Old Testament and New Testament killed people, but we probably haven't killed anyone. But every one of us has been angry at some point. I know I have. I struggle with anger on occasion, and that's something that we have to deal with with God. First John 3:15 says, "To hate someone is to commit murder in our hearts." You ever think about that you hate someone I don't know anyone I hate there's some people I'd soon not be around I think we're all like that right doesn't mean I don't love them but to, to hate someone is committing murder in your heart that's terrible we have the Holy Spirit indwelling dwelling in us John 14 15 and 17 says if you love me keep my commandments and spoke with the Holy Spirit that has and dwelling in us and we believe that the Holy Spirit comes on us at baptism as Acts 2 38 says repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit verse 23 therefore if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sis- sister has something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar first go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift when we take communion every Sunday we're getting ready to do you shouldn't have anything against anybody especially in here if you do you shouldn't partake we're told to examine ourselves that's part of what we do in communion we should examine ourselves yes we're proclaiming Christ's death till he comes again we're remembering him this doing remembrance of me but we're supposed to self-examine ourselves and we've got some issue with someone we need to settle that it's not good for the unity of the body sometimes you agree to disagree I'm not talking about that but if you've got some issue that's making you angry, you need to work that out. This spirit of reconciliation is talked about by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 21. Five times he talks about being reconciled through the body of Christ. If we're reconciled through the blood of Christ, we have to be reconciled as a body of believers. And he says settle matter, verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, he continues on here with adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I find it interesting that he's talking about men, right? I think men struggle with this much more so than women. Not that women don't lust after men, but that's a real issue for men. And he used some hyperbole here. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I don't believe he truly means for us to do this. I think we need spiritual surgery. Maybe we do need to cancel our Internet or get a flip phone where we can't access the Internet, right? Maybe we need to change our cable channel to just a few channels, right? It's uh, unbelievable what's out there for people to see. People used to keep their, their laptop or their personal computers in a, in a room in the house for their kids where they could always see what they're on. It's not the case anymore. You've got these little computers walking around in your phone that people can do whatever they want, and, and the pornography industry is booming. We need to do something to change this oversex society that we live in. And it's not going to change from Hollywood. It's not going to change from our congressmen. It has to f- happen with the men of the household and what their families do because it's the men who are going to be held accountable. The male heads of household are going to be accountable for that. Sin may be outwardly seen but can also be concealed in our hearts. I know Mark shared with me that that was a key part of this message this morning is what's going on inside of the heart we can't see. We can see anger, right? We see road rage. You can see the outward results of things, adultery, but what goes on inside the heart, only Christ sees that. That's why we're told not to judge, right? But appetite leads to action. Proverbs 7, verse 2 and 3, and I'll finish with this. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart that's the Old Testament it wasn't just about outwardly it truly was that this should be what this should be within the hearts of the Israelites but they didn't get it and that's why Christ is talking about that here is how he came to fulfill the Old Testament law and finally here the connection point although we are justified by faith in Christ justified by faith we are declared righteous because of Jesus we must strive to be disciplined disciplined in our daily conduct Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Remember that old song? Faith is the victory. And we can't do it by ourselves. That's, that's the good part about it. We can't do this by ourselves. We have to rely on Jesus Christ and his shed blood for our sins. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together to do a deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount, to hear you speak to us through the Holy Spirit. We pray that if if there's someone here lost today that hasn't made that confession of faith, that they need to do that today. They need to repent of their sins, and they need to be baptized for the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that if anyone's here today, that it'll be like Zacchaeus when Christ told him, today is the day of salvation. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.